0: This is halftime month in our capital campaign here at Eastlake, and we're so delighted uh, uh, for what God has done up to this point. Uh, we, are, we launched that halftime last Sunday, and uh, this, uh, this month we're bringing you up to date uh, today wanted to give you a building update and, and open the building for those who are able and want to go down and see it. There are people in there, they'll tell you what you can see and where you can't go, but uh, it is uh, of interest to you. Uh, the, the road, is beautiful it is from the road, the road doesn't do it justice. When you go in there, it's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And so I encourage you, if you are able to do that, and uh, a lot of... a uh, a lot of crazy stuff going on in the, in the kingdom of God here at Eastlake, and we're blessed to be a part of it. Thank you for coming out in the rain today. How did our umbrella folks do? They do good? I saw Pastor Aaron, and he looked like he was the umbrella. I don't know what shift he got put on, but uh, he was soaking wet. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. While you're turning there, I want to tell you, I want to introduce you to a family that's going to be joining us at Eastlake on staff this summer. This is Jonathan and Sandy Brown and Carrie, Susanna, and Lainey. They're going to be our family life pastor. Both Jonathan and Sandy will both be on staff moving here from Lake Charles, Louisiana. And they're going to be over our student ministries. Anybody with parents, family Children at home or under 21, they'll be the, the in charge of that whole umbrella of our ministry from the nursery to the college and then parents and family ministry uh, uh, type stuff. So we are so excited. They're probably going to watch this later today. They're in church down there right now. Would you just welcome them this morning? <laughs> Jonathan. And Sandy, we are so excited to get you guys here. He sent me a big picture this week, a picture rather, not a big picture, a picture of a big vat of crawfish, live crawfish going into oil. And he said, they're trying to keep me here. I said, dude, that is cruel and unusual punishment. We shoot our food before we eat it. And uh, you just boil it alive. That sounds like a biblical, uh, epically biblical punishment, but anyways... Um, I'm going to ask you a question as we begin this morning. I'm I'm starting a series uh, today, but I want to ask you a question as we do. As you think about your Christian life, as you think about being a Christian, what is the best word picture to help you understand what it means to be a Christian? Just think about that for a moment. The Bible gives us lots of beautiful pictures of what the Christian life is like. I think it goes in so many diverse directions because the depth and the beauty and the breadth of Christian, of the Christian experience and salvation is so deep that you have to say it in a thousand ways. The Bible talks about us, our salvation, in the, in the picture of a courtroom where God is the judge sitting upon his throne. We are sinful, guilty, standing before God, and Jesus, the Son of God, steps in and intercedes on our behalf and takes our place. Aren't you glad for that picture that Paul gives us in a lot of his writings? The Bible talks about the Christian life or the Christian experience being as a family. We are are adopted into the family of God. Jesus uses the phrase, you must be born again. What he's doing is he's telling us it's it's like a family. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. Isn't it good to know that we're in the family of God this morning if you've been saved? The Bible says that being a Christian is sort of like a marriage. Christ is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. And as members of the church of Jesus, he's, he has washed us, and he's made us ready, and he's going to come back, and he's going to receive us, and we're going to have this grand and glorious wedding in the sky. The picture of the scripture, the scripture gives us the picture of the shepherd and the sheep, the potter and the clay. But I think there are few pictures as powerful and as prominent in the Scripture as the picture of us being travelers on a journey. We are travelers on a journey. The Apostle Paul was writing to a church that I believe in many ways exemplifies the modern church that is in existence today. The church at Corinth had some issues, to say the least. And the Apostle Paul was trying to write to this church with some serious issues and help them understand what it is like being a follower of Jesus and being a Christian. And he, he, he decides to use two examples, both of which have to do with a journey or a, or an adventure that we're on. In, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's begin by reading uh, in verse 24, the last couple verses of chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. He said in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? I know that better today than I did yesterday. You didn't think I could go through the sermon without at least referencing it, did you? Uh, So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul is saying to that church with its myriad of issues that don't you know that this Christian thing is like an Olympic athlete running to receive an Olympic reward. And the reward that they're going to receive is temporary. It perishes. But we as Christians are running with the same level of diligence, the same level of focus for a reward that will never fade away. Can I just stop this morning and ask us this question? Where did we ever come up with the notion that walking with Jesus was to be a nonchalant potato chip event? Paul is saying just the opposite. And I can appreciate that because I just trained for the last 11 weeks and potato chips have been a long ways from me. He said, verse 26, he turns this into a personal illustration. He said, I do not run aimlessly. I'm diligent. I'm focused. he, He gives us another picture. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not just doing this thing randomly here. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He He's giving us this picture that the Christian life is a race. He switches gears and gives us another illustration beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. I want you to be aware of something, he said. Let me give you an historical lesson. Verse five. Nevertheless, with most of our ancestors... The children of Israel back in the day when they were leaving Egypt going to Canaan. With most of them God was not pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolatrous as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ. What is he doing? He's pointing, he's pointing out stops on the journey. Exodus. Exodus. Numbers. He's telling us about things that happen on the journey, and he's trying to give us advice in this Christian life that we're on a journey and don't, let's use them as an example. Let's learn from their journey and understand where we're going. You see, continues on Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. And 23, or, or, or sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. We, did, we, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D. And these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. What is he doing? He's giving us good advice for the journey. It's a race, he says. He backs up and says, it's not only an Olympic race. It's best illustrated in the story of the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan. This is your Christian life. We're moving on this, not a static, dead, lifeless, religious existence, but a dynamic adventure. Verse 13, he ends with a word of encouragement. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted on this journey beyond your ability, but he will with every temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. it. On the journey, there's going to be high mountains and deep rivers. There's going to be fierce armies, but God is going to be with you on the journey, and nothing's going to come your way on this journey that God won't help you come through. How many of you know that's a good word this morning? There's no sickness. There's no battle that you're going to face. So this sermon, uh, this series really is the convergence of three things. It is the convergence of the passion of my heart for a long time to understand better in my own life and to help men and women see their Christian life not just as an event, pay attention to this, not just as an event that happened that gives them entrance into heaven, but to see their life as a Christian as the Bible describes it And as God intends it, it is a way of living. It is a pilgrim on a pathway. It is a traveler moving towards a better place. So that passion has been in my heart for some time. For more than a year, I've been talking to Ben and saying, I want to do a series along these lines. A few months ago, the second piece of this, a few months ago, Stan Key sent me a book that he just wrote called A Journey to Wholeness. And he said, would you read this book and write a little reference for the, for the inside of the front cover? I don't know why he asked me to do that, but I got a free book, so it was good. Or I got the, the manuscript of the free book. I read it, and I wrote him back, and wrote him. I said, not only will I commend this book, but I'm going to use this in a sermon series. And he said, I wish I could be there. And I said, me too. About four or five weeks ago, I was invited by Jeff, my brother, and some others to be a part of an event in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible, and on the first day, this is the third piece of this... On the first day, George Barna of Barna Research Group, now Meta Information Group, he, he got up and he began to talk about from a Barna Research, from a research perspective and six year study that he had done, what the Christi- how Christians view their life and the importance of seeing it as a journey and the stops along the way. I was texting Stan Key while I'm taking photos of his PowerPoint saying, Stan, this dude stole your stuff and you stole it out of the Bible. And I'm going to steal all three of you. (laughs) So this morning, listen, listen to me this morning. This morning, I want to begin this series. We're going to take a little detour next week with Mother's Day. And then we're going to come back and spend several weeks, Lord willing, in talking about this matter of the Christian journey, the pathway of a pilgrim, the, 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 the direction we're heading and the work that God wants to do in our life. The Christian life is not merely, listen, a static... Why do I keep saying that this morning? Anyways, you're listening great. The Christian life is not merely a static existence of beliefs, but rather a relationship with Jesus that leads us on a dynamic adventure. It is the chronicle of events that happen in our life that lead us more and more to be the person God created us and has redeemed us to be. Anybody, met, ever, anybody ever met anyone that... They, they say, oh, being a Christian is boring. Anybody ever met anybody like that? You have no idea. Those people have no idea the glorious adventure the Christian life is. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church that was not unlike the modern church. The church in Corinth was a, had a lot of flamboyance, and they had a lot of noise, but they were fraught with issues. I'm not a pessimist, and I'm certainly not one to point fingers at the church world, but I am convinced that the American church needs revival. And we're not unlike the Corinthian church. Stan Key says that the Corinthian church, of all the churches in the New Testament, none had more moral problems, more doctrinal aberrations, divisions, and carnality than the church at Corinth. Though they prided themselves on the signs and wonders and spiritual manifestations that were evidenced when they gathered for worship, this church was perhaps as dysfunctional group of believers as there is in the New Testament. The church in Corinth was a tragic example, he says, of spiritual immaturity. And it's not much, I see so, as I studied this over the past few days, I see so much similarity between it. And I don't want to start off just super negative this morning. But here's what I understand about the church at Corinth. They had a lot of hallelujah and not a lot of holy. There was a lot of action at church in Corinth. They knew how to get it on on Sunday morning or whatever they, whenever they were together. It was very exciting. There was a lot of emotion but not a lot of holiness. It was an exciting place to be because one minute they would be jumping and shouting and the next minute they'd be fighting over a communion cup. They were suing each other, sexual relations going on in the church that wasn't right. And the apostle Paul is trying to handle this. Here's what they were. They were about a mile wide and an inch deep. They had a lot of religious stuff going on. but they were. And Paul is saying in chapter 9, he spends most of chapter 9 talking about his own life. And he concludes that by saying, guys, don't you understand? We're in this serious business of a race. And, and I myself am going to finish this race strong because I don't want to disgrace the kingdom of God at, here at the very end after I've preached. And then he gives him this, this illustration. There was a significant doctrinal confusion in the church at Corinth. How many many of you know somebody that's got internet theology? You know what internet theology is? It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a whole lot of Google and not a lot of God. (laughs) You can go right now. You You can get your theology. What is this? And it's great as long as you know what you're searching for. You might be reading some dude in somebody's basement that ain't seen outside the daylight in 20 years, but he's down there putting stuff on the internet, making it up. And you might think you're reading some great scholarly mind. You might be building your theology from, from Mormon websites or Jehovah Witness websites. You don't even know. You, and I've met people, I mean, it's a sort of a phrase I've coined around here. I said, it sounds like internet theology. The church at Corinth had a lot of flamboyance, but their doctrine, there was all kinds of doctrinal confusion. There was a great, there was a great amount of division. They were dividing over personal preferences and sinful behavior. And the way Paul decided to preach to them, to teach them diligence and faithfulness and fruitfulness uh, to this this worldly church was to help them see the Christian life, first like a race, and second like the pathway from the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan. He preached that the Christian life is a dynamic journey. Of all the metaphors that the Bible uses, I think that's as beautiful uh, of one as is in Scripture. You know It's not a foreign concept that we ought to be walking every day with the Lord in the way of the Lord. The scripture tells us that Enoch walked with God, amen? I wonder what Enoch's wife thought when he didn't come home from that walk. The Bible says that Noah walked with God. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord told Abraham, walk before me. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk among sinners, in Isaiah 30, Isaiah said, this is the way, walk ye in it. In Micah chapter 6, says, what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with your God? In Galatians 5, we're to be walked by the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, we're to walk manner of our calling. In Ephesians 5, we're to look carefully how we walk in 1 John chapter 1, it says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this, this important, Paul is laying down this reality that, guys, we're on a journey. We're walking together. He gives a personal illustration beginning in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I've already mentioned that. That personal illustration became much more personal for me yesterday you know, by the way, they told me when you're swimming out in the middle of the lake, it's good to sing a song. It'll keep you in rhythm. Get something upbeat and exciting. And you, just go on, on, on. you know, I was singing, Lord, I need you. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't, but anyway. I think I did think that a couple times. He gives them this illustration. Where do we get the idea that this is a nonchalant deal? The American church has... The American church has created this, this, this reality that we punch our ticket for heaven, we stick it safely in our wallet because we don't want to lose it because when we get to the pearly gates, we're going to need it to get in. And Christ says, no, 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 no. Egypt is your life of sin. The Red Sea is your conversion and baptism. And then I'm going to take you on a journey. And I think you're gonna, we're going to see in a moment where this journey, what the destination really is. And there's a destination before perhaps the one we're thinking about. And that's, he gives us this, this picture, this historical illustration of the children of Israel. There are four conclusions from this little narrative, and I promise I'll be done on time. But there are four conclusions from, from the story of the children of Israel that Stan Key points out that I want to point out to you this morning and add to it a little bit. The first one is this, Be informed. Be informed, it is a journey to spiritual maturity and fruitfulness, not just heaven. If the Christian life is a journey, where are we headed? Naturally, we're going to heaven, right? We get saved, praise God, we're all going to heaven, we have eternal life, Christ said... He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. But here's the important thing. Canaan in the scripture is most often viewed as a picture of heaven. But the Bible doesn't describe Canaan as heaven. The Bible describes Canaan as a life of abundance, fruitfulness, and spiritual maturity. Did you know that the reason Christ saved us wasn't just to get us out of this world and get us to heaven? That is the reason if you have a worldview that says the number one goal of your life is to be happy so then I get saved and Christ makes me happier and someday he's gonna give me happiness that never ends. And that's a true statement to a degree in the sense of he brings joy and all that and in heaven's gonna be eternal joy and bliss. But did you know that Christ has a destination that he wants you to stop off at on your way to heaven and that is Canaan, that's the land of spiritual fruitfulness and maturity. We're headed to heaven, but many Christians miss out on the destination of maturity and fruitfulness and blessing and effectiveness here and now because we fail to see that we're delivered from sin to enter the land of spiritual abundance. George Barna, this is what I want to give you a picture of a slide. He told, me I was, he told me he would send it to me. I said, don't worry, I got it. He, he was gracious enough to record a podcast with me while I was there. Look at these stops on the, spirit, on the journey to wholeness. He, he, this is six, six years research he did. This, this just riveted me, and I want to share it with you because it helps us see where we're going. Stop one, everybody's somewhere on this list. There's this ignorance of sin. I'm totally unaware of sin. There's stop two where I become aware of my sin, but I'm indifferent to my sin. Stop three is I'm concerned about the potential effects of sin. I began to think to myself, how is this going to mess with my kids? How is this going to mess with my marriage? What about my life after death? I probably need to do something. And how many of you know that the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? Thank God for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that says, don't do that. You need to repent of that. That's wrong. We become concerned about a potential effect. Number four, we address sin through accepting Christ. That's a wonderful thing to do, to confess our sins and repent of our sins. And Christ comes in and he forgives us of all of our sin. Number five, what happens is increased religious activity. We get saved. We go to church. We start joining Bible studies. We start doing more Bible studies. We we start volunteering at the church. And this is good. All of this is good. According to his research, he said somewhere between year 10 and year 14, after your conversion, you, 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 you enter into this place of holy discontent. And you begin to say to yourself, is this really all there is to my Christian life? He said in the church, we don't like people being discontented because in the American world, the number one goal is to be happy. And we don't want anybody to be discontent. So we take you, when you get to number six, we say, well, let's go back and let's do number three again or number four again. Or more often, he said, we take them back to number five. And when they come, find this lacking in their heart, lacking in their life, we say, you need to get more involved in the church. You need to go to more Bible studies. You need to take more classes. You need to You need to volunteer. We need to get you in this group. And all of those things are well and good. How many of you know that the Holy Spirit of God might be creating discontent in our heart because he wants to peel back some layers so he can do something deeper in us? Somebody say amen. Amen. Because holy discontent, if you'll let the Holy Spirit work, he said, leads you to stop seven. And stop seven is the place of brokenness. Because then I begin, God begins to really pull me apart and show me and speak to me. We really don't like brokenness in the church. We really don't like brokenness. We want to protect people from brokenness. I don't, and I don't want anybody to be broken, but I want to tell you something. Some of the mightiest men and women of God I know are men and women that I've seen God break. I had a man, I had a man came to me after the first service this morning. He stepped in my office, and he, he's, a, he's a prominent, wonderful leader in this church. And he said to me, you remember the time I was sitting in this office broken." And I said, I do. But he, through the brokenness, he let God do his work in his brokenness, which led him to a place of deeper surrender and submission to the will of God. And he got to the point where he just said, Lord, whatever you want in my life, that's what I want. How many of you know that brokenness might just be the Jordan River? Surrender and submission might just be the Jordan River because brokenness leads us to surrender submission and then that takes us into a land of fruitfulness and effectiveness and maturity. Barna calls it a profound love connection with God and an extreme love for people. There's a phenomenon that exists in, uh, in, in the church world. Uh, different people throughout the church history have a, tried to uh, uh, wrestle with it in different ways. Pastors wrestle with it all the time, and that is, why is it that some Christians seem to thrive and reach spiritual maturity and spiritual effectiveness and spiritual fruitfulness? Why is it that some seem to do that, and while others, it seems, as a pastor, uh, you know, I'm I'm a priest, I'm trying to get people to God in that sense, I'm not a literal priest, but my goal is to get, and why is it that so many, it seems, fall short of reaching their full potential for the glory of God? John Wesley said he believed there were there were um, uh, people who found a higher road. And then there's some people that just lived and going to heaven. Praise God, they're going to heaven. But listen, your destination on this journey is not just Jesus saved me so that he can help me with my problems now and then end all my problems later and send me to heaven. Jesus saved you so he can use your problems now, your life, your adventure, through the work of his Holy Spirit to mold you and shape you into a man or a woman of God like never before in this world. This is a journey Barna says, looking at transformation as the process that enables us to die to sin, self, and society in order to fully and profoundly love God and people. Transformation, then, is the effort to become holy by fully submitting to God and consistently pursuing His will, being set apart by the blood of Christ to experience a unique freedom and new identity through the power of that blood and the enduring guidance of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that the purpose of the journey is critical, he says, you're not likely to experience full transformation if you don't know what it is and you're not devoted to its pursuit. He goes on to say, most Christians mirror cultural goals. Our culture goals are happiness, comfort, security, belonging, and popularity. Surprisingly few are focused on completely cooperating with God to experience the kind of whole life transformation described in the Bible and made possible only through a partnership with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This lack of understanding of the goals of a truly Christian life prevents people from making the extraordinary life transition that that are possible. Be informed. The journey's destination is spiritual maturity and fruitfulness. Amen. This, 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 this ought to encourage everyone this morning. God's got big plans for you in this life. Amen. Secondly, Stan says, be wise. Not all who start the journey reach their final destination. In verses 1 through 4, if the destination is spiritual abundance... The reality is that many never reach that place. Paul's illustration was the children of Israel. Many died in the desert. They never got to Canaan, including Moses, by the way. A good start in our Christian life does not guarantee a good finish. Barna has actually quantified this. He's actually put data to it, and this was intriguing to me. Show the next slide. Show the next slide if you would, please. There we go. On his, he, he actually did the research and researching over six years on all these different individuals. This is where he found it. Unaware or indifferent to sin, 56% of people. That's steps one and two. Concerned about sin, step three, there was 14%. Saved and religiously active or churchy, he calls it, uh, four and five, 20%. A holy discontent is seven percent. You know what? You see how the numbers start diminishing? Why? Because in the church we rescue people, we don't let them go further than that. We want to bring them back to steps two or three or four or five. Holy discontent is seven. Brokenness two. In less than two percent, in his study, this is just scientific research. In his scientific research, Christian in Christianity, less than two percent find a place of full love of God and extreme love for people. That, that was so intriguing to me, giving, given the, the journey that I'm on and the, and the journey as a pastor. I don't know about you, but I want to be in the less than 2%. Anybody with me this morning? Thirdly, be alert. There are certain dangers that all pilgrims will face on the journey. Paul mentions four in these verses. Idolatry, sexual immorality, putting the Lord to the test, and Grumbling. he closes with this encouraging word be encouraged God is faithful be encouraged God is faithful Paul wanted them to be encouraged that God was with them and there was nothing they would face on the journey that he did not have the grace to provide for them let me give you Stan Key's three encouraging words number one you are normal turn to your neighbor and say told you some of you had to tell your wife that Paul says Paul says, no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. This is your journey. If you're a believer, you're on the journey. You've not faced anything that, that has someone before you hasn't faced, that someone right now isn't facing and somebody later will face. You're, it's normal. You're normal. Number two, God is faithful. In the final analysis, it's not your hold on God that matters. It's his hold on you. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He will never leave you or forsake you. There's no mountain too high, river too deep, enemy too fierce that God won't be there with you. And thirdly, victory is promised. With every battle, He will make a way of escape for you. Isn't that an encouraging word this morning? So let me ask you this Are you on the journey? Where are you on the journey? Which way are you headed? we're called to be pilgrims we're called to be pilgrims Paul calls us sojourners foreigners, strangers, pilgrims we're pilgrims, we're traveling where are we going? we're going to spiritual maturity and fruitfulness in this life and we're ultimately going to heaven in the next life, amen listen, don't get too caught up in this place guys, we're pilgrims keep your bags packed don't get too attached here I haven't often, but I'm going to this morning quote a 400-year-old hymn. I put it on the screen because it's written in 1684. And you need to hear it and see it. The writer of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, wrote this on being a pilgrim. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be. Come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound. His strength the more is. No lion can him fright. He'll with a giant fight. He will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor Falfine can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Are you a pilgrim this morning? Are you a pilgrim? God's got a plan. He's got a journey. He's got a destination and destination of spiritual fruitfulness and maturity. Oh, praise God, we're going to heaven, but he's got a lot of work for us to do in this life. Are you on the journey? Where are you on the journey? How you doing? Can I tell you that God's grace is sufficient and he wants to work in your life to take you from this point to that point to this point and everything you face, God will take it. He's a God is a hoarder. He throws nothing away. He takes everything we face and he shines it. He polishes it. He puts it on a shelf and he uses it someday for his purpose and for his glory. Amen? God wastes nothing. Let's be a pilgrim. Lord, we pray this morning as we close. Lord, I pray that you would give us all a hunger, a hunger to follow you, Lord, with all of our heart. Lord, give us grace and strength and help this morning. We trust in you. We depend upon you. And we need you on this journey. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and sing the chorus of the song we sang early. For more information about Eastlake Community Church, please visit us online at eastlake-church.com or find us on your favorite social media platform at EastlakeSML. Thanks for joining us.